Hello, and welcome to the Up Next podcast, where we highlight the people and ideas that represent the best of Christian leadership today. It is during challenging times that we realize how important leadership is. That is why Research Global is dedicated to training and mentoring the next generation of Christian leaders in major global cities around the world, so they can be prepared to tackle the challenges that are to come. These young professionals will become the future business and civic leaders church elders, entrepreneurs, and change makers in the communities. And we are so encouraged when we hear their dreams and plans for the future for their hometowns of LA, Austin, Chicago, Jakarta, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Nairobi, and beyond. We connect these young leaders to one another also, so they form a truly global team of growing marketplace leaders advancing the gospel. As part of the year-long cohort training, we bring some of the best thinkers and mentors to come alongside these leaders. And as a result, we are thrilled to share the wisdom of these teachers with you on this show, highlighting the real stories of what it looks like to lead with your faith. Our host is Tommy Lee, president of Research Global, who will be joined by a myriad of guest hosts and co-hosts during this time. For more information on Research Global and to listen to past episodes of Up Next, please go to www.researchglobal.org. Well, hello, everyone. Today, I have the great, great, great honor to meet someone. I've just met once in my life in person. We attended a Cubs game, but we've been lifelong friends. Neil Hart. Neil, how are you? Tommy, I'm doing really well. It's great to be here with you. Neil, for those who may not be familiar with Mergon and Mergon Foundation, what do you do in your role with the Mergon Foundation? Yeah, Mergon is a, an investment company. Um, we're a 40-year-old 40, 40 investment company, and we are a foundation. So, in fact, we structured as a foundation, but we've got active investments. And uh, we've, our founder, uh, 40 years ago, he moved 30% of the organization into the foundation's hands, and he, he structured in such a way that the kingdom of God was the only beneficiary um, of the foundation. And over the years, uh, Francois Fenico, because his name, he moved the, the foundation up to 70% ownership of everything. So in other words, he, he just kept on moving ownership across um, to the place where I guess in about a year's time, we're going to be almost 100% um, that all of our investments around the world are um, owned by the foundation. And the only sh- uh, significant shareholder of that foundation is, is God and, and the kingdom of God. So we make money uh, to, to give money away to ministries. Um, I lead the foundation. And so the foundation is a, a catalytic resource partner to ministry. So we work with maybe 100, 150 different ministries across Africa and Middle East. We'd love to uh, be uh, involved further afield than that. But the reality is um, we just, you know, a drop in the ocean of of what is needed in world evangelization, but we're doing our part. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Now, how long have you been with the foundation? And before all that, what were you doing here? Uh, What were you doing, Neil? Well, I, um, I began life in advertising, actually. So as an entrepreneur, um, started advertising agency, a few businesses, but my main, my main avenue was advertising. And I ran an ad, ad agency for, for close to 20 years. Um, just love, love the creative space, love working with creative people. And I had a, an amazing advertising agency, which is still running today, but I handed that over in 2011. 
um, uh, to answer a call of God who uh, really spoke to my heart to come and lead a, a missions organization. So um, some of you may know Floyd McClung. Floyd founded All Nations. And um, in about 2011, 2012, he, Floyd had been praying um, for someone to take over from, from him at All Nations. And, um, and so, you know, God really showed him that uh, he was to invite my wife and I to do that. And in 2013, we transitioned out of many years in advertising, led a missions organization. We were planting churches amongst unreached people groups. And um, then, uh, and interestingly, because it felt like that was what we would do for the rest of our lives, uh, God called time on that in about 2018. And uh, very clearly through an amazing supernatural um, process, which I can talk about another time, uh, God led me to Mergon um, to come and lead the foundation here. Wonderful, wonderful. Hey, Neil, I, I think a lot of times I, we've heard advertising, we've heard all nations, we've heard church planting, all of those things. Was there a time where God, how, how did you know to, to transition from one thing to another? Did God speak to you directly? Did he close doors? How did you know it was time to go? Ah, oh, great question. Um, this, this whole conversation could just be about this one point because I think one of the marks that God's left in my life is how clearly he can speak to us um, and move us uh, when, when we are prepared to obey his voice. And I think, you know, we, we, we learn how to do that over a lifetime. Um, I can trace it back to many years ago, um, somebody, we were in a small group and, and this visiting guy came past and he just said to me, hey, I've got a word for you. As he was walking out the door leaving, I didn't know him very well. And he said, uh, I feel like the Lord would say to you that there are going to be significant moments in your life of transition when you're when he'll speak to you through your wife and then he walked out the door and that was it but i remember that being something that i held on to um in the transition from the advertising agency to the missions organization um my wife said to me one day she couldn't hardly even remember saying it but it was significant to me when she said it she said uh, floyd is going to ask you to take over leadership from him now we were doing we were different cities doing different things and three weeks later, Floyd phoned me and he said, Neil, will you pray about coming to take over leadership from me? So that was the sort of the, the, one, the one piece where I really felt like the Lord had led me and I connected it back to that word. But probably more significantly, um, when God, we started to get many words about change in this sort of season at the end of all nations. Um, to the point where I, I sat down one day and I said, God, I'm getting so many words from different people that change is coming. What are you wanting to do? Um, and I said that I felt this kind of small voice saying that for the Lord to say, it's time for you to resign. And I was shocked because I thought change was going to be in another direction, you know, change within the organization or what it was. And when, when I felt that, you know, the Lord just prompted me that, Hey, this is time for you to transition. Um, and I resigned, uh, took quite a lot of courage because I had nowhere to go. I was certain the Lord had said it. Um, so we resigned. And during that first week, it was quite incredible. I, um, and I don't say this to, uh, you know, hopefully you don't pick up any arrogance here, but I got seven job offers in about yeah. 10 days. And yeah. I did not know what to do. They were all amazing. I could have picked up on any of them. And, um, and, and one evening, uh, one night, my, my wife had a dream. And she woke me up and she said, I just had this dream. And in the dream, someone from Mergon phoned you and asked you to come and lead the foundation. And three days later, someone from Mergon phoned me and asked me if I would be prepared to come in. They wanted to talk about someone to lead the foundation. 
And so I knew that God had directed me to this place. Um, and so, you know, what I'm doing now, what a joy just to be walking in his will. Random question. Like, for instance, when your wife mentioned Mergon, is like Mergon a well-known organization or did that name just pop up? Was she familiar with what Mergon was? We, we were familiar with Mergon um, because when we were leading all nations, Mergon was one of our funders. God, but God, God. but not, a, not on a significant sort of level, on a very, yeah. very low-key level. Um, so it was there in the back, but it really wasn't something that I had aspired to. It was not something we'd spoken about. Yeah. It wasn't even one of the options that were on the table. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting because I, I listen to what your story is. When I graduated from university, I built cell towers for about 10 years. From that point on, then later on, I got my master's. I was a pastor for three years. Then I worked at a Bible school called Moody Bible Institute for the president's office for another three, four years. Then I'm doing this. And a lot of times people say, how did you know it was time from to move from place to place to place? I said, I didn't. Every single time I walked into a new place, I had the very intention I was going to be there for the rest of my life. Yeah. And you steward and you honor where God has placed you and you do your job well. But then later on, something, a, a door closes, a door opens, a tug, opportunity, and you're sitting there paying attention. But it's not like you plan any of this, right, Neil? Exactly. And, uh, and I think that's the thing is just for us to be always ready. You know, I, my wife and I have always said, we'll go wherever God tells us to go. But we need to be sure that he's told us to go there. And so I always, uh, you know, wait for a word from the Lord that I know this yeah. is this is what the Lord has said to me. Which transitions to your book. The one quote that I love, which I think is sets the theme for a book, is this. You write, wise leaders envision a future organization without them leading it. They do this near the earliest stages of their leadership and implement whatever is necessary to make it a reality. When I read this, I said, I totally understand it. When I walk into an organization, I'm 47 years, uh, 46 years old. I'm thinking, I don't know how long I'm going to be gone. When, how long I'm staying? Eventually, I'll be gone. What do I need to do to elevate these people and take over when I'm gone? And you start yeah. working through it. Yeah, but that's rare. Uh, that's not what most leaders do. So uh, I think, you know, most leaders, I mean, we're excited about the things we lead, aren't we? So, you know, we get in and, and we're just building and building and we're excited. And, we, and before long... Um, we are so invested into the organization and the organization's invested into us to such an extent that we can't imagine the organization apart from us being there if you're in a leadership role. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I think this is what I was trying to say there is, uh, as leaders, we have to be able to imagine what the organization looks like without us. Yeah. Not only that, but we have, to look like, we have to imagine the organization thriving without us. And that will lead us into this place where we're super excited about this next generation and the next season that's coming. Yeah. Now, Neil, you mentioned a lot of times leaders don't think that way. Why do you think that way? Did something happen along the way? Did a mentor come alongside help you change your way of thinking? Did you see something as you work with health or, uh, healthy organizations that you saw something that was wrong? You know, uh, Tommy, great question. I, I think typically pain makes us uh, catch a wake up, right? Mm -hmm. So I was leading an advertising agency that I founded and, um, and I loved it. It was just amazing. We had, you know, 50, 60, 70 uh, professional staff. It was just exciting. Every day was amazing. I never for once imagined that I wasn't there until I realized that, that the season was up. And, and typically I think, you know, there are very few people that, that begin to transition, 
you know, like a couple of years before. Normally it just suddenly dawns on you and you start to suddenly realize, hey, my, my time's coming close to an end. Um, and I didn't, I didn't think like that. So, you know, when God spoke to me, I, um, I took six months and I began to hand over the business. But I should have taken six years to hand over the business because when I did, the leader who succeeded me, um, the, the business faltered. It, he really struggled. And in my, uh, in my arrogance and in my flesh, it was good for me to think about someone who, you know, leading this organization and not doing as well as me. I mean, that's, that's the weakness of the flesh, right? It's, it's, it's ego saying, well, look, how, well, look what a great leader I must have been. Um, but, but when I went through one transition fail into another one and put another leader in place, I suddenly realized, Neil, you have messed this one up so badly. And so I think that then got me thinking um, when I moved into takeover from Floyd, Floyd was a founder. Now I was yeah. taking over from a founder and we were able to dialogue a lot during that time about what a good transition should look like. And so Floyd was a mentor to me as well as someone I was taking over from. And so we began to really talk these things through. And in that season, I started studying how Jesus transitioned. And that's why the book is called The Magnificent Exit, because uh, there's only one magnificent exit. All the other exits try and get to that sort of level. Yeah. But Jesus said that greater works that we'll do than he did. And so if he transitioned exceptionally well, I began to believe we can do this as well. One thing about Jesus, but before I do, Neil, I remember even I learned transition well from my youth pastor, actually. I had a youth pastor when I started going to church over here in Chicago. And when he first started, there was about 20 students. He grew that thing over the decade that he was there to over 2,000 students and created student leadership. And I still remember as a young boy in high school, you learn how to plan games. You learn how to do public speaking. You learn how to be involved in student leadership teams. You learn to work through all these things. And I asked myself one day, and this was me, a junior in high school, says, if this man ever left, this whole thing crumbles. Yeah. And I kept wondering, so how do you keep a vision of an organization or an entity going if that person was a, I didn't know the answer, Neil. So I kept yeah. asking that question all throughout my time in college with InterVarsity, all that. I kept asking and I found that so many leaders wanted to build it on them because it made them feel good. But when they left, the whole thing fell apart. And I, yeah. I realized there's something need to be done. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, the, um, the, the tragedy in, in all of this is the erosion of value of organizations because of ego. So, you know, whatever organization it is, it's probably come a decade, two decades, three decades, in some cases longer. And just because one leader with, and it's normally his ego, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think female leaders are often better at this than, than the male leaders. Um, can can transition badly and create such a, an earthquake in that organization that it begins to stumble. Sometimes it recovers, and often it takes five or six years to get back to where it was, but sometimes it doesn't recover, and we, we see that a lot. Wow. Neil, there, there's so many different ways. I could, uh, I could talk to you about the shadow side of a leader, the ego of a leader, but I, I do want to ask you about Jesus because you mentioned one thing about Jesus transitioned to faulty leaders. He gave Peter yeah. the keys to the kingdom and the guy messed up. How, how do you decide who to transition to? 
How does leadership roles, failures, the character of a leader, what do you look for? Yeah, well, good, good question. It's so hard. Uh, choosing, choosing leaders around you, raising up people around you, I think is really hard. Um, I interviewed in the book, I interviewed several leaders who transitioned large organizations really well. Um, and that is one of the questions I asked them. I've got some views on it, but I wanted to hear um, what it was. Because I agree, Jesus chose dodgy leaders. I mean, we looked at those guys. They were all over the place, right? So from a world's perspective, uh, I'm sure, he, sure there could have been better skilled people. That's how we think. Um, some leaders said to me they worked with one person that they identified for a long time. Others said to me, they worked with a team of three to five people because they weren't sure which one of those would be the right person. And I think, you know, we can do one of one of either of those two, but the, the, the key thing is to begin early because what you're not looking for is skill, you're looking for character. And I think that's the key thing. Character takes time and character needs to be tested in front of us for us to really be able to see what's inside. And I think that's what Jesus was doing. He picked... A bunch of guys and he knew these guys their character was going to transition through the period of time we look at their skills yeah. you know there, there's no mention of their skills anywhere yeah um, but we, we see character references about the disciples all the time and i think that's because it's the thing that we need to be looking for as leaders and in some sense the term that you used i loved it a greenhouse for growing people was the term that you used, and you saw a tax collector you saw a fish couple of fishermen you saw somebody who did accounting and Judas, all those things, and all of them just had their weirdness and weird qualities about them. One of them even betrayed, but you're trying to grow leaders, but yet at the same time, you're not going to guarantee success 100% all the time, though, right? I mean, I think the failure rate is high, and that's why most people don't focus on it. Um, you know, how, how, do I, how do I raise leaders? Uh, you know, I think that's a question all leaders should be asking. Um, but then we should be creating enough room for failure. Um, yes. We, I, you know, I've had leaders who've allowed me to fail. And, um, and what a breath of fresh air when a leader says, hey, that wasn't cool, that wasn't great, but try and do it this way next time. And so if we can, if we can create plenty of opportunity for character to be shown, Jesus did this. He tested the character of his leaders all the time. Um, and I think... The greenhouse idea is the sense that let leaders grow around you, but, but keep focusing on the character. Allow them to fail because they're going to mess up. Because as we keep helping them through those places of failure, they're going to get stronger and stronger. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I think that we look for is w when God has tested people deeply. You can see, you know, they went through, their marriage was on the rocks, but they managed to pull through the other side. Or their, their finance collapsed and they somehow just stewarded their finance as well. Those kinds of things are really telling for us to see the kind of character in people. Oh my gosh, I love everything that you're saying. And I, I find, Neil, one of the best things that my mentor always taught me, whether it's in the business world and ministry, they taught me how to think. Whenever I work with younger leaders, they're sitting there, okay, just tell me what to do, I'll do it. I said, no, 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 I need you to think. I need you to look at options. I need you to own it. And they, but those mentors of mine allowed me to learn how to think, but fail and figure out how to get out of it. I yeah. would probably say that really helped me out in my journey. And so for us, as we're transitioning, you got to help them think through options. But yeah. if they're failing, don't rescue them. 
let them figure it out and let them we now at the same time there are some people may need a little nudge may need a little encouragement some people may need a little push but you got to understand the the personality of each leader that you work with yeah no that's good i i love how you do that that's i think that's such, such an important thing that we've got to do and i think mostly we are we feel like we could offend people or we could yes. be stepping over you know our professionalism uh, we've got this professional veneer in 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 the work environments that if I suddenly start to speak to this person about their their private life on any level, I've stepped beyond. But that's the key. That's what we have to do. We've got to get into personal lives. Uh, we've got to hear how things are going. So you know, I think it's really important that we step into those places where we can see failures happening or about to happen, and help to coach people through those. And Neil, would you say a lot of times that means you have to when you said you've got to get into their lives. You have to treat each person differently as a unique individual. It's not like, hey, one book on leadership, here's how it is. Every different person responds differently. There are some people, based upon how they were raised, needs a little encouragement. There are some people who are good to go. They just need you to give them space and figure it out and they're self-motivated. There are some people you just need to push a lot. So everyone is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I love personality test profiles. You know, I love strength finders and Enneagram yeah. and Myers-Briggs. I, I mean, I do them all. I just get, I just keep, you know, getting my team through these things because it helps us to understand the, you know, Enneagram helps us to understand the motives behind yeah. uh, people. Strength finders helps us to, to know what they're really good at and they can thrive. Because sometimes when someone's come through a failure, you need to give them something that they can thrive in and feel good about themselves after. And so all these kinds of things are really helpful to treat yeah. people as individuals, like you're saying. One of the lessons that I also learned when we first started Resource Global with Jakarta, we had our city director who was a female leader. She was talented, Neil. She was so talented, but she lacked confidence. When I first met her, I said, hey, look, I, I want you to start speaking. I want you to be, uh, to be the main person to lead this organization in Jakarta. And she kept telling me, Tommy, I'm not sure if I can do it. I can't do it. I, and I realized, okay, you're the person who's scared, but she had she didn't see what I was able to see, but I realized if I just threw her out there and says, okay, here you go, you go speak. I was going to kill her confidence, but you had to, what you said over time, Hey, look, let's start with you giving announcements. Then why don't you be the MC? Then why don't you do a moderation of a panel? Then do a 10 minute devotion over time, because that was what her personality needed versus me throwing her out there. That's so good. So good. I, I um, and again, I probably got this from my mentor, but um, when I when I was leading All Nations, I was leading a, um, a, a large group of volunteers from 15 different countries. And he said to me, volunteers, because, I, you know, we're not paying salaries. So suddenly it's not you can't hire and fire somebody um, and you also can't pay them enough to keep them there. So they're really there on their own time. And he said to me, volunteers um, uh, thrive on encouragement. And I realized, boy, I'm really bad at encouraging people. I've got to somehow work it out. And so I started to think about this. And you know what it looks like for me when, um, when we do this is I, I see myself standing in front of somebody, putting my hand right in, uh, grabbing hold of some gold that I can see inside of them that they can't see and pulling it out and shaking it in front of their face until they recognize what I can see inside of them. And that's just what I, you know, that's what I've tried to do over time is I know there's something I can see in them that they can't see and I've got to reach in, I've got to pull it out and I've got to show it to them. Yeah. Neil, I, as soon as you said that, my image, I sat in a church service not too long ago and I listened to a pastor who was looking for a volunteer and his message to the folks was, 
We need all hands on deck. We need people volunteering. We're absent. This is the worst way to motivate your volunteers. <laughs> You're guilty, these guys, into becoming a volunteer. I, and so I'm saying, even though it's taking longer, wouldn't it be better to sit down, understand a personality, say, hey, look, I think based upon what I know you, you should try this. And after maybe two weeks or a month of doing this, can we talk through what did you enjoy? What did you not enjoy? Versus every single week, all hands on deck. We're family. We need you and all that stuff because it just <laughs> won't do anything. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. Uh, uh, the one thing. The one chapter I loved about your book that I thought was so important, celebrity. Leaders don't want to give up power. They love that platform. What did you, what was your thoughts on celebrity and why, why devote a whole chapter on celebrity? I actually uh, finished the book without that chapter. And um, I was having a conversation with somebody and we got onto the topic of leadership transitions and I, I probably said, you know, I've just been writing a book on it. And we started dialoguing about the, the things that make it uh, super hard to transition. And we landed in that conversation on, on this piece about the thing that probably the one thing that makes it harder than any of the other factors to transition is celebrity. And I just thought I've got to write a chapter on, on celebrity. Um, you know, when we look around the world, celebrity leaders are, um, you know, we, we write about them, we put them on TV, they're on social media. The church has followed the pattern of the world. And so we've elevated the celebrity leader. Now, Jesus was not a celebrity leader. Jesus, um, he walked away when it was time to walk away. He was hidden when it was time to, to be hidden. He didn't, speak of, he didn't speak to more people in his lifetime that could fill into one football stadium. And, and so if he'd been pursuing celebrity, he would have said, I need more influence over more people. Now, that's what we get taught in leadership school is you need influence and you need to reach more people. Jesus did not do that. And so the counterintuitive thing um, that Jesus did is, is quite opposing this whole thing of celebrity. So celebrity just ma and the reason why I wrote it is it just makes it impossible for anyone to follow you. Very, very you write that there are two main ways of celebrity. The first one, totally understand. I love the second one. First one, when people take glory for ourselves. But more so, I want you to speak on to this one. The second happens when we start out well, but we receive praise from people as a result of good leadership. I don't think there are too many pastors or ministry leaders who go out and says, I just want to go into ministry to benefit myself, to feed my ego. That probably isn't the way you go in ministry. But you go in with the heart to love the Lord, but suddenly people start saying, well, you're a great preacher, you're good, and you start eating it up because of insecurities in your life. Yeah, it happens so easily. Uh, you know, I have to fight this all the time, and, and I'm, I'm uh, no great preacher or no great teacher, but you, you'll, you'll, you'll teach something, and then you have some people saying, hey, can we record that? Can we get that on, on YouTube? Can we?" And then someone you know, calls you and says, I saw you know, what you said on YouTube has changed my life. And, and suddenly you start feeling good about that. And, and in that moment where you start feeling good about it, you, you take the glory yourself. And so, you know, and I think that's why I made the distinction in the book is some people go out there to build their own kingdoms from the beginning. That's, I think that's fairly easy to see, but it's, it's the other side where you've got hundreds and thousands of great leaders, but the, because we have a celebrity culture, 
it gives you that feedback and it makes you popular. And in, in the moment of weakness where you begin to take that glory for yourself, you step into that and suddenly you're on this very slippery slope uh, to move into celebrity. Wonderful, wonderful. I love it. If you, we're running out of time here, but I love this so much. You're so much. I want to talk to you about the psyche of leader. I want to talk to you about the inner heart of a leader, the shadow of a leader, all those things, because all that plays a role in transition. I'm going to have to do a second interview with you on this one, Neil, just for you and I to chat through some of these things. Love to do that. Yeah. Neil Hart, thank you very much. And one thing for those who, where can they find you? Where can they find information on Murgan Foundation? Uh, Murgan Foundation, we situated in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Um, and, and so, you know, murgan.co.za, I think is the, is the URL. Um, it's spelled M-E-R-G-O-N. Um, you won't find me much on social media because uh, I jumped off social media six months ago. Um, I'm a little bit on LinkedIn because of the book, you know, so the publisher yeah. needs a little bit of support and help. But I've tried to live a fairly quiet life when it comes to that in, in these days that I'm in. Neil, thank you so much for jumping on. And we will definitely do part two because there's so much on that. And I, I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about all these things. Thank you, Tommy. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the time. Talk soon. All the best.